Wherever you are in the world, thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Badminton Podcast, a community for badminton players by badminton players proudly brought to you by Valan. We talk all things badminton and aim to inspire you to be better in your game and in life by celebrating the people and stories of our global badminton community, whether they be past or present professional players, social players, officials or fans. We're your hosts, Jeff and Henry, and we love badminton. From the bottom of our hearts, we'd just like to say thank you to everyone who has listened to, shared and been part of the podcast. It wouldn't be possible without you all. If you do enjoy our episodes and can spare just a couple of dollars each month, you can really help keep the podcast going by supporting us on Patreon. Just visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. We'll leave the link in the description. As people who love badminton, we all know that it's not just about the sport itself. It's about the connections you make and the things that it teaches you as a person that you're able to bring to all of the other parts of your life. That's why we want to introduce you to the book Mirror of Magico, written by Al Liao, a former Taiwanese national badminton player who is as passionate about badminton as us. For those who love Harry Potter, you want to give this one a read because Al has authored a fantasy story where three different characters with varying personalities go on a journey of adventure and learning. And they realize that things don't just happen to you, they happen because of you. And by being yourself and spending time in your dreams, you can conquer the evils and be the best version of yourself. So make sure you check it out. Mirror of Magico, written by Ao Liao. You can find it in all leading bookstores and we'll leave the link in the podcast description. So joining us on this episode today, we have 22-year-old former badminton player, Fi Teng Yu from England, who is a current sport and exercise psychology student at Loughborough University. During her professional badminton days, she spent two years living in Malaysia and Indonesia to train, compete, and of course, eat all the yummy food there as well. It wasn't long ago that she won the English National Badminton Championships with her mixed doubles partner, Max Flynn, in 2020. Fee has a big passion for mental health and well-being and believes that having a healthy mental state and an understanding of what is going on in our minds is so crucial in succeeding in every other aspect of our personal and professional lives too. She dabbles in trail running and writing. She even has her own blog where she writes about how psychology and mental well-being can be applied into our everyday lives. So aligned with the theme from her intro so far, she is currently doing a research project on mental health in elite badminton players and how badminton differs. So on today's episode, we'll not only explore her story, but also dive deeper into this topic. But I think why people are increasingly unhappy is that, I think what I wrote was about the hedonic treadmill. Basically, they're always chasing, chasing more. If I can relate it to badminton, you're always chasing better results, higher world ranking, 
and just more and more and more, thinking it will make you happier. But at the end of the day, every high that you have only lasts a short amount of time. And then you get back to like your normal happiness level. And it's the same for every low you have, every low you have, it only lasts a short amount of time. And then you also get back to your same happiness level. So it's like you're seeking this external thing for happiness when it's not actually going to make you happy in the long term. It might make you happy for, I don't know, a few hours or a few days, but inevitably you will get back to this same happiness level that you were before. Welcome onto the podcast, Fee. Hello. Fee, it's great to have you on the show and really excited to you know, explore this topic of mental health and mental health specifically for badminton players with you. But of course, before we do that, just like on pretty much every other episode that we do, we love to explore players' badminton stories. So it would be great to hear about how you got started playing badminton in your own words. Yeah, so basically I started when I was around six or seven. I have two older brothers. So my dad kind of put us all in at the same time to play at a local club. And then since then, I've just continued playing up until I was, what, 20, I think, around 20. Around COVID time is when I kind of stopped. And yeah, I didn't know if the question was just how I started or the whole journey. Oh, no, we can go through the whole journey. So you started off playing and then what, what did that look like for you? Was it something that you said you played with your brother and your dad? Was it something that you found that you enjoyed instantly and then you decided to train and compete? How did that go in terms of that? Yeah, so I guess I was playing kind of locally at a club for a few years. And I think my first competition was when I was like maybe nine years old. It was just like a local competition. And I think I won it as well. So that was quite good. And then. I guess I just kept playing. Obviously, I was still studying on the side. I just kept playing and training in the evenings. And then I was enjoying it. I was doing quite well. And when I was 12, I think I played for England for the first time. So I was in what year, probably year eight or nine by then. So I was kind of doing my GCSEs whilst traveling and getting to travel the world and like just play badminton. So I played all the way through for England up until, up until obviously I stopped. But when I was 18, I went to, so I finished my studies and I went to Malaysia and Indonesia to train and compete and stuff. So that was for two years. I trained at a lot of various different places. Um, yeah, it was, a, I think that was a really good experience for me. Like I went alone. So I was like, I kind of lived alone and everything. So there was a lot of independence there. And I definitely learned a lot when I was out there. Yeah, perfect. I think that. It's a, a very a condensed version of the journey so far, I'm sure, because there would have been many different experiences there that look, hopefully we can explore some of them as we go on in this podcast. I guess from winning your first competition at nine years old, that's pretty incredible, especially if it's yeah, your first one. But what, what I find interesting is that you said from 12 years old, you already started playing for England. So what was, what was that like, that period from before you went to Malaysia and Indonesia to train? A 12 to 18 year old period what is it like to live that life where you're playing for the country probably in a sport that most people still think is a backyard sport sorry sorry if I'm stereotyping but in England it probably is still considered somewhat a backyard sport right so what was that like I mean it was obviously really fun because when you're young and you get to kind of travel around and represent your country it's obviously like such an amazing opportunity and like 
you definitely get a lot of recognition for it as well in your school. So kind of a lot of people knew who I was and like I'd be the one that like was good at badminton. And I don't know if you know Sean Vendy, he actually went to my school as well. So everyone like knew him as well. But yeah, I think it was it was difficult, especially in A-levels, to catch up with work and kind of balance the two. But I think over the years, it definitely, I don't know, I guess it taught me how to balance the two areas of my life quite well. So now I could be quite organized and it kind of helps me now. Yeah, that's great. And then so I guess when you did decide to go to Malaysian Indonesia for two whole years to train and compete and eat really good food, what was the main goal behind that? Was it that you just wanted to experience full-time badminton and see how high you could get? Was it something you were planning for a long time? And and how did that actually happen? Because I guess that that doesn't happen too often um, for a whole two years in. So what helped you make that decision? So I think after I finished my A-levels, I always wanted to go full-time anyway, just to see what it's like and experience kind of the full-time, doing full-time badminton and really just put my everything into it. And I guess I was just talking to my dad and we just decided, because he has, he knows a few people out in Asia as well. So that was definitely an option for me to do. And I think we just decided that that would be a good option for me. It was just, it's just something different, you know? And obviously, like, it's a lot easier to find players and coaches out there to train with. So, yeah, that's kind of what happened. Mm-hmm. So which clubs in Malaysia and Indonesia did you train at? Do you remember? And was it a club group? Was it like a group setting or was it like one-on-one that you organised with, with a coach? So it was mainly group setting. So in Malaysia, I first went to one called Nusa Masiri. Yep. I don't Which know if you know it. Yeah, Rizwun, the Sedex. Yep, I've been there. Yeah, That was tough. Like <laughs> yep. that's just physical. So much physical. Did you run around that oval in every morning? So I didn't train at the stadium. I trained at his house. He basically has some courts at his house. Okay. And there's like few players there. Like there's only three courts, so there's not many players there. But I was there. We did do track running every Thursday morning, though. That was like horrible but (laughs) I improved my fitness so much I definitely learned so much discipline during that time like waking up waking up at like 4am every single day Monday to Sunday like it definitely challenges you but no I enjoyed it it was really fun Mm -hmm. and then where else um in Malaysia and Indonesia I went to what's it called Serdang there's a club called Serdang in Malaysia I went there and then I went to another one which was more one to, it was like mixed one-to-one and group training with a coach called Shawal. I'm not sure what his club is called, but uh, yeah, I kind of dabbled in a few different ones. In, in Indonesia, I went to Jaya Raya. Yeah. Yeah, yep. that was really good. Definitely able to play with a lot of like good players there. And the depth of players is just crazy. Like all the younger players, they were just so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's really interesting. So from your experience training in England, so 18 years old, you go to Malaysia and Indonesia, what were the biggest differences that you found between English training, Malaysian training and Indonesian training? So in Asia, I think they definitely focus a lot more on physical. I think in England, you're kind of expected to do a lot more of the physical yourself, for example, like going for runs and stuff. But there it's like, the whole session would just be physical. You're not going to hit a shuttle at all. You're just going to run or you're just going to like do shadow or whatever. Like for example, in Miss Boone's place, uh, Nisa Missouri, every Thursday morning, Thursdays would be a half day, but in the morning, like you'd go hard at the track and it was just like, 
so tough, but you would sometimes we would hit after as well, but it was just like purely focused on physical. And another thing is when they do their routines, they tend to be lower intensity, but longer sets. So sometimes I'd be doing like 20, 30 minutes, just doing some like practice. Whereas in England, it's very like short and sharp and with high intensity. So as far as what you've learned in, in say Malaysia and Indonesia, what do you think are your most biggest improvements from being there? Everything, to be honest. Physical, definitely. Physical was the number one thing, I think, that just really improved like my fitness levels. And then, I don't know, I think because during those times I was also growing up as well, so there's like changes mentally and like the way you see the world and stuff like that, which definitely translated onto my on-court stuff as well. Great. And this is a little bit off topic in terms of training, but if you were going to name a food that's your most favourite in Indonesia and your most favourite food in Malaysia, what would they be? Oh, that's a tough one. My favourite would just be having barbecue and hot pot, to be honest. Like, it's so cheap and they have so many in both Indonesia and Malaysia. I'm not sure it's quite like typical Malaysian food or typical Indonesian food. Okay, Malaysian, my favourite is roti chanai. But yeah, other than that, hot pot and barbecue were my favourites. Can't go wrong with the roti chanai. No, roti chanai is really good. Especially when you can convert it back to your own currency. That's the brilliant thing. Tastes even nicer when you realise how cheap it is, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, besides the, I guess, VIP invite to Misbun's house to <laughs> play badminton, uh, Jeff, you didn't get the invite, you only know about the stadium, right? So yeah, went with the group. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And yeah, of course, training in Indonesia. So did you have your doubles partners with you when you went to Malaysia and Indonesia as well? Were you there by yourself? And you just, when you played those international tournaments, you would play for, say, the first time in however long you haven't seen them before. Is that what happened? Yeah, so I think, no, they didn't come out with me. I think one did come out with me for some time, but just to play a couple of tournaments. But what would happen is I would either play with, if I was playing in Asia, and my partners didn't come, I would play with like someone from the club. So especially when I was at Jayaraya, I would play with like people from the club. But usually every three months or so, I would go back to Europe to play tournaments with my partners. And then I'll kind of go back to train. But I think for me, the main focus was my development to go out in Asia rather than like being with my partners to play the tournaments. It was very much like I just wanted to develop myself as a player. So yeah, it was really difficult having to navigate that yeah definitely it would have been a huge learning experience at 18 so traveling by yourself training by yourself living by yourself or just being alone a lot of the time and then just having to push yourself every day that's a huge 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 learning experience but i guess now where you're 20 years old so not now but after you come back from asia you're 20 years old and you've at the moment at 22 you, you talk a little bit kind of in past tense that you, yeah you're not playing professionally anymore what was that decision like? And yeah, how did you come to that decision after winning the, the mixed doubles with Max as well? Yeah, so I think the decision kind of came before that. So that was kind of like one of my final tournaments. I think it was very gradual, to be honest. I think being out in Asia, like being by myself alone, you kind of think about a lot of things. And I always knew that I was, when I was out in Asia, I started getting more interested in kind of psychology and mental health and like the importance of having a healthy mindset not just for sport but for like anything in life 
And I always knew that was what I wanted to do after badminton. But then when I went to uni, when I started uni at Loughborough, I don't know, it was just a very gradual process of like, I really want to explore other areas rather than putting everything into badminton. And like, when you have to put everything into badminton, it's like you have to dedicate like so much of your time and like a lot of years to get to where you want to be. And I just felt like at that time, I really wanted to explore other areas and career paths as well, which I hadn't been able to do since I was like, I don't know how I was just the whole time I've been playing badminton. So this might be jumping a little forward, but uh, in terms of when you were playing on the professional circuit, and I guess your topic of research is the mental health of elite badminton players, right? So when you were on the circuit, some of those internal conversations or internal dialogues that you're having with yourself, was that the spark of that interest that sort of drew you onto that journey itself? Or was it more more really, that's the kind of space that I'm interested in from an external perspective. You're just looking at that sort of area of, or subject and you're saying, okay, I really want to explore that. Or was it really driven from within? I think Babinson definitely plays a part in terms of, I think there's a lot of like small occurrences that happened over time. And like gradually it just got me thinking more and more. And that's kind of what sparked the interest. And then I think I found a YouTuber online or something. I can't remember what exactly they were talking about, but it was around the topic of like psychology, mental health. It wasn't sport related, but I just found it so interesting. And then I just started watching more and more and more. And I think that's where it kind of sparked that passion, you could say. And I just, everything I learned, I could relate back to like my life as a elite athlete and kind of just put all the dots together kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I think that as a, as an athlete, you just learn, you're forced to learn about yourself and know yourself so deeply earlier on. I'm not saying that in other avenues that you can't, but I think in sport, especially competitive sport, you do really, it's something that you need to do. You really need to look deep inside yourself. And I guess let's move on to the topic. So basically the mental health of elite badminton players. And we will talk about badminton specifically, but your interest in this area has obviously gotten you to kind of express yourself in, in your blogs and things like that. And looking at one of your first blogs, you're talking about why people are increasingly unhappy. So in terms of that, what did you find and what are your thoughts about that, that statement? So I can't remember what I exactly wrote in the article, but I think why people are increasingly unhappy is that I think what I wrote was about the hedonic treadmill. Basically, they're always chasing, chasing more. If I can relate it to badminton, you're always chasing better results, higher world ranking, and just more and more and more, thinking it will make you happier. But at the end of the day, every high that you have only lasts a short amount of time. And then you get back to like your normal happiness level. And it's the same for every low you have. Every low you have, it only lasts a short amount of time. And then you also get back to your same happiness level so it's like you're seeking this external thing for happiness when it's not actually going to make you happy in the long term it might make you happy for I don't know a few hours or a few days but inevitably you will get back to this same happiness level that you were before yeah I think that's yeah the blog's relatively fresh in my mind so I think you managed to share the thoughts that you had in the blog on this podcast episode. So Fee, that, yeah, that was pretty much exactly what you talked about, the hedonic treadmill. And I guess it reminds me of 
I think something I heard a long time ago, you know, happiness is not a destination, it's the journey. And yeah, like you were relating it to badminton, and I guess for the those that are listening from a more general perspective, it's how you described it, Fee, in the blog was more about getting that promotion at work. And when you get that promotion, you're like, oh, you should be happy at that time, but then you sort of revert back to normal. So it's, I guess it's more about chasing that next big thing and constantly chasing that next big thing and thinking that you'll be happy at that point, but you never quite get there. And ultimately you live quite a dissatisfying life. Now, just a quick word from our sponsors. The Badminton Podcast is brought to you by Volant. Volant was first born out of our frustration with the confusing, bright and unsightly clothes and equipment that we saw in the badminton world. But now it's so much more than that. Our mission is to accelerate the growth of badminton by providing players with products that enhance their love for the sport. All in all, it's high quality gear that makes you look and feel great on and off the court. So make sure you check us out at volantbadminton.com and follow us on our socials at volantbadminton. But if we now sort of switch it up to badminton itself and talk about, I guess, how perhaps you perceived your life when you were on the circuit, you know, chasing those results, is that sort of that kind of feeling that you you got when you were on the circuit as well? Yeah, definitely. I think you can kind of get into a tunnel vision where you're just only focused on results and getting better and you just neglect all the other parts of your life. You think that this is like the only thing that's going to kind of make you happy that everything you need to put everything into it. But actually there's so much more to an athlete than just their sport. Like I believe everyone has like multiple passions in life. It's just whether you choose to explore them or not. And like, there's so many different parts to your identity but a lot of athletes kind of just put all their identity into this one sport and neglect everything else. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I think when we spoke to Mark Sellis, obviously from England as well, he said, I think one of his statements was, it's only badminton. He has to remind himself sometimes it's only badminton, even though he lives and breathes it. Sometimes you have to just remind yourself of that. And speaking of that reminder that he has for himself, What did you find worked for you? So you said that you could feel yourself maybe getting into those kind of patterns where you're looking for the next thing or looking for the next achievement in badminton. Did you have any internal dialogue that helped you kind of put things in perspective like you've been saying? I guess it could be similar to Marcus in terms of like it's only badminton, but in a different way, I was kind of like, I guess being grateful for being able to do what I do. You know, if my biggest issue in that moment is having a bad performance or like losing a match, then I'm already doing quite well. Like if I'm healthy and I'm okay, like if my loved ones are healthy and they're okay, everything else is kind of just a bonus. So it's kind of just seeing it from a different perspective, I guess. Yep. We had a sports psychologist speak to our Australian athletes as well at the start of this year. And one of the things we were talking about was nerves before playing. And of course, there are lots of strategies for, for nerves, right? To, to get yourself in the zone and to get yourself focused, et cetera. But at the end of it, there was the last strategy I think you were saying, and that's just to realize how lucky you are as an athlete. An athlete's life, life is really short. So instead of looking at nerves as something that's debilitating and scary, think of it as a privilege because you're not going to be able to do it for that long. And not that many people in the world are able to feel that kind of nervousness because they're not professional athletes. So I think that's a really good one. 
So if we go into basically your research, so we'd love to hear about at, at Loughborough what you're doing with this research. I know you've only just started it and this is where we want to just flesh out some ideas about the mental health of elite badminton players, but what's this research for and where are you at the moment in terms of your, your thoughts behind it? So yeah, it's for my undergraduate dissertation. Um, so I'm in my final year now and I'm basically interviewing, well, I haven't yet, but I will be interviewing elite badminton players around their perceived threats of kind of to their mental health as an elite badminton athlete and the associated like coping strategies that they might use to deal with these like psychological burdens and also just like what mental health means to them. I think for badminton specifically, actually my friend said this to me that how it's an Asian dominated sport. so. Maybe because in Asian culture, I think mental health stigma is a bit higher than in a Western culture. So that could also play into like the sport and the, the stigma that mental health has within the sport as well, which I thought was quite interesting. Yeah, I think perhaps from an Asian culture perspective that generally speaking, people are a bit more reserved with their feelings and they tend to bottle that up quite a lot, a lot more than out, outside of that culture. Maybe that's just a generalization. but. Yeah, I think that that definitely will will play a role into a lot of the elite players' lives. But before we jump into badminton specifically, I know we do have a lot of, I guess, badminton players or social level players that are listening to this podcast at the moment. But when we're talking about, I guess, professional level badminton, competitive elite level badminton, before we jump into just badminton at a high level as well, I guess maybe we can talk a bit about just general sports and elite sports. So. When we shift into the world of sport and I guess high level sport, high performance, what do you think changes or does it change between normal everyday life? I think, yeah, it definitely changes because essentially it's your career. So it's what's kind of keeping you surviving. Like you have to do well in order to sustain yourself. And it's like, if you don't manage it correctly, you can get into a really negative spiral because literally your rewards are dependent on your results. So it can seem like your self-worth is dependent on something that you can't really control. So you can't control your results. You can't control your performance. But at the same time, the better your results are or the higher your ability, typically the more rewards and recognition and respect you get will increase too. So it's like the better you are, the more important and the more worthy you are, which will be really detrimental when you have a low day, like every athlete goes through bad days. And when that happens, you'll just be affected so much more because you believe your worth as a human being to be dependent on the way you perform. Yeah, definitely. And I think with that comes identity as well, right? So how do you identify yourself when you are a professional badminton player? Like, I think that is huge in terms of, because everyone has different roles, right? Everyone has a role of a brother or a sister or a mother or father or daughter or son. And like which role comes out most that you identify with and with badminton players or athletes in general, I'm sure that that's the first thing they'd say, who are you? I'm a badminton player. Yeah. And then when that's gone or those results don't line up, then what do you say? I'm a badminton player, but I didn't play well. It is difficult, isn't it? Mm, It's really difficult. And I think you get into a mindset where it's like, it almost doesn't matter what you're like as a person or who you are outside of the sport because your results are just completely dependent on how you perform. 
And like when you perform well, you get that validation, you get those recognitions and it makes you feel good. So it's kind of like addictive as well to keep going and chasing those highs. It's like what you have to realize is every single career has its downsides. So are you just there to chase the highs and to enjoy the highs? Or are you also able to embrace and accept the lows that inevitably come with it? Um, have you ever heard of Mark Manson? I believe so, but elaborate and uh, maybe I'll be able to confirm. He wrote the book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. If you know that book. Yeah, 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 I do. Yeah. So basically, he didn't write this in the book, but in his blog, I remember reading it a few years ago. He said, you have to like choose your bad sandwich. So essentially every career has this bad sandwich. And rather than choosing a career that you really enjoy doing, you should choose a career that has like the best bad sandwich. So if that makes sense, so you have to like, you acknowledge that every career has its downsides and its lows, but it's like, what downsides and lows are you willing to tolerate and go through when you're kind of choosing your career? Yeah. So choosing it based on what the worst thing is, what's the best work outcome that yeah. the career could bring? Yeah. yeah. And not just like focusing on all the, all the highs and all the good points. You also have to acknowledge that there's like lower parts of the career as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then I guess if we, what we spoke about just before is, is true for athletes generally, generally, right. But if we go more into say badminton itself, I know that you've already, you've already discussed a few things with us. So you, you talk about, yeah, there being no real, there's no real off season for badminton, is there? So you, it's just, you have to play tournaments all year round and be good all year round. Exactly. And then I'm just going to name a few that um, you've discussed with us and it's the pressure to correct, uh, collect ranking points, which is really important, of course, to get in the main draw of tournaments, get world rankings, get into Olympic Games, all those things, really important. So year-round, you have to play well. Year-round, you have to collect ranking points. I'm going to say another thing that is not what we've discussed previously, and I think the other pressure is choosing the tournaments you play. I think choosing the tournaments that you play is also quite stressful and there is a bit of a strategy behind it. If you can strategize your way to an Olympic campaign by playing some really small tournaments in in Africa or in in Oceania or in South America, all, all those small tournaments. And I think that that ties into the next one, which is financial pressures, which if you have to go to these kind of smaller little countries to play these tournaments, collect ranking points all year round, then finances are a bit of an issue there. And then the last thing you talked about was competitors competing against your friends, which happens all the time, right? So in a national program, people get funding, people don't get funding, and they're your friend, but ultimately they're your competition as well, and how to manage that friendship yet. I think that's where, maybe it's just my perception, but I think that's where Asia does quite well because I feel that their mentality is a lot more group mentality. Like say the Indonesian team, they're just like, they want everyone to be good. They care more about the nation. I had a Chinese coach and I remember him saying to me, the flag on the front is more important than the name on the back. That's what he said. And that's what the Chinese live by as well, which I completely agree because there's that kind of mentality there. But I think in Western countries, it's a little bit more of me against you, which of course adds them to the mental pressure as well. So if we're going to talk as an open discussion now with Henry as well, do you have any other reasons why badminton is very, it's hard to manage the mental health side of it? Like what could be detrimental to your mental health in badminton, Henry? Oh, big putting on put on the spot after um I guess it's hard to follow up on uh what you've just said, Jeff. I think I think there are cultural elements that are gonna have a difference. Like you said there, the 
it's hard for us to, well, hard for me to kind of say blanket statement, these are the key factors that affect all badminton players, but they're going to affect everyone in a different level. Like, for example, how you said financial pressures, they're going to impact a professional player you know, coming from a different, different context, different background, living in, say, a third world country, et cetera, not having the exposure that those that have, you know, that are financially capable or from whatever background they come from and the access that they get because of the those financial benefits as well. Um, so you might have a player that has you know, 90% of their stress, their mental health is being driven by this financial pressure. And then all the other elements may play in, in a much smaller part. And I think on part of the financial pressures is, which also ties into friends and, and competitors, rivalry, et cetera, is also the competition for sponsorships, which I think is is probably at a higher level playing a pretty big role in terms of the stress. I know having the chat to some of the players on our podcast in the past, that battle for sponsorship has is a key driver or motivator for a lot of these players because they are so financially challenged as well. But I think there are so many different elements that we could, I guess, dive deeper into. But I, I think from, um, and I think there's going to be the challenge with your research fee is that can you really categorize everything and, and be like, if you have this pressure, it's three times the instability that you get from a mental health perspective versus this element. I think from my perspective, we kind of need to list out the hundreds of difference of elements that are involved in these players as part of your conversations and then really dig deep on some of those key ones. Yeah, so my research is actually, it's qualitative research, so it's interviews, which means it's not about comparisons, it's not about numbers, it's really just about digging deep into the meanings and perspectives of the athletes and just like we know that that it's not going to be exactly objective, but that's the point. Like we have to dig deep to really understand what's going on. Cause like you said, every single individual is different. So you can't really have a one size fits all for these kind of things. So I know you've only just started feet, but what are your thoughts in terms of, we've talked about a few of the badminton specific ones, like no off season and, and the pressures having to perform all year round, but based on the other research that you may have had a look at from other sports, do you think badminton players are better mental health wise? I know it's hard to tell now, but what's your initial inkling as to if badminton players are mentally, would you call that as a healthy sport in general? I think, okay, compared to like what I've learned about in my course, probably yes, which is probably why it's not been as researched as much as other sports. So I think there's other sports that have a lot of pressures on kind of weight and body image. So that breeds a lot of disordered eating, eating disorders, and just like a whole culture of that kind of aspect. So I think especially like they call it lean sports. So like endurance running and things like that. You have to have a specific kind of body weight and body shape to be able to perform well. And it's kind of like, the lighter you are, the faster you run, like to an extent. So there's that pressure. And I think there's also, there was this paper that said that in their culture, I think it was endurance running. The culture is like, if a girl loses her period, you need to lose your period as a girl, because it means that you're working hard. And like, I don't know the exact like wording or whatever, but basically if you don't lose your period, you're not working hard enough, basically. And that's just really toxic in itself. Wow, that's crazy. I've never heard of that, but that's 
So work your body that hard that you just disrupt that cycle. That's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Shit, menopause at like 2022. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It really affects the health. Wow. But I guess that's where badminton might have a bit of a strength, right? Because we do see some of the best in the world. Like Yamaguchi, she's been playing well recently. Um, she's small. Of course, she's strong. She trained really hard. But I guess the maybe the stereotype for a certain body composition or, or lean sport isn't maybe as as dominant in badminton. Of course, there are advantages of it. But I guess that's where maybe badminton is at an advantage in terms of that, not having an extra thing to deal with mentally. Yeah, like there's no one ideal body type. I think no matter what body type you have, you have your own advantages and disadvantages that you can use when you play. So that's what's kind of good about badminton. I think there's a lot of variety. I wonder whether or not the, I guess, the perception of badminton as not so much like a you know a top level sport, like top shelf sport when it comes to sports in you know various, especially Western countries, right, where it's not quite at the top. Whether there is a difference between the level of mental health pressure on those high performing athletes, or do they even care at that level? Because I owe JF cares obviously, because you know everything we do here is to try and show the world how incredible badminton is, right? So he obviously cares, but when we're talking about yeah professional badminton players and who have grown up in you know, a country where badminton isn't as popular, do they kind of have a chip on their shoulder as a professional badminton player? Or by the time they get to the high performance level, does it really matter? Did it matter for you, Fee? Did it, did it add an additional pressure where you're just like, I'm a badminton player, these are my great results, but at the same time, no one recognizes them or not, not many people recognize them in a country or a country like ours? I think I didn't really mind it. I'm someone who doesn't like a lot of attention on me, which is probably bad for an athlete. But yeah, I quite liked the aspect of badminton being in this kind of, obviously it's bad in terms of like it's lowly funded, but in the aspect of like, no one really knows who you are. I quite liked that because I never wanted to be like, you know, a celebrity or like famous or anything like that. I think that's where that could be a strength as well. So maybe we don't get the recognition as badminton players because it's not as well known to the public in say England or in Australia or say Western countries, but then that could work well because then you don't have to worry about everything that you say or your tweet or you post or you, or like if you don't perform that well, there's not going to be half the country kind of saying that you're not good anymore, et cetera, which we do know happens. I'll speak maybe out of line here, but in Malaysia, they, to me, they absolutely crucify their players. The fans crucify their players, which obviously does not have a good effect on their mental health when they don't play well. But of course, when they do play well, they're like gods. They, they absolutely love them. And I think that's also where Indonesia is, maybe if you're into an Indonesian badminton player, I would probably say that they're happier because the fans are as enthusiastic as Malaysians, if not more. But if someone doesn't play well from Indonesia, there's that kind of, patriotic support that even if they don't play well they're still supporting them and that they're, they're always commenting good luck and get better and be stronger and etc but i think from my perspective malaysia is one that they're really harsh on their players yeah i think that definitely adds like a huge pressure like i think because in malaysia there's less players so like they rely on this one player to do well and like they just want i don't know it's a tough one but it definitely adds that a lot of extra pressure that we don't really have here I don't want to speak out of line, otherwise I might not be left back, let back and eat that rotty chanai. So. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
So in terms of the other topics that you are, so basically the, when you're interviewing the badminton players, what's your goal in terms of who you interview? Are you trying to go internationally? Are you trying to go professional to semi-professional? What's the scope of who you're trying to talk to? Um, so it's any elite badminton athlete. So that includes international. I'm hoping to get some international players in as well. They basically just have to be currently playing professionally and like have a current BWF world ranking. So it covers like basically every professional badminton player, I guess. Awesome. I think that that's a really good segue then into how potentially any of the listeners out there can get into contact with you, Fee, because uh, we do have a lot of listeners all around the world from, yeah, all different countries and a lot of them will have BWF world rankings. So hopefully this could be a spark for these players to reach out to you to maybe be involved in the survey and, and you're in your research because obviously it's something that is really important to the sport as a whole and we do want to make sure that the mental health is taken care of so that the sport is a healthy sport to be in and people can basically they basically love to be involved in it so Fee, how can people get in contact with you or follow you to either participate if they're if they are actually if they meet the criteria of having the world ranking and or maybe find out about the results of your research yeah, I think definitely reach out if you do have something to say about mental health. It would be great to kind of raise more awareness um, in the badminton world. So definitely give me a message if if you're interested in that. I think, I guess Instagram is the best way. I'm most active on Mindfully Fee. So at Mindfully Fee, it's like my blog account kind of thing. And yeah, you can also check out my blog. You don't have to like be studying psychology to read it. I think I've kind of tried to write it in a way that it applies to kind of everyone and kind of everyday situations. And that's just my name, feetingleal.com. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Fee. So for all those listeners out there that want to connect with Fee, look at her blog, etc., we will make sure to pop that in the description for this podcast episode. Now, Fee, from Jeff, myself, the Badminton Podcast, and all those listening, thank you for sharing your story as well as your research project. For those professional badminton players that are listening to this podcast, thank you for listening, first of all. But secondly, make sure to get in touch with Fee and share your story with her and uh, help her out with the research project because it's uh, definitely an exciting one. And Jeff and I are very excited to hear about the results of that one. And hopefully, maybe in the future, we can bring you on to another episode and we can talk about what you had found. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was really fun just chatting with you guys. <laughs> awesome. No problems. Thanks, Fee. Bye. 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 <laughs> so from Henry and I at the Badminton Podcast, thanks for tuning in to this episode. If you've enjoyed it or found it useful, be sure to share it with your family, friends, teammates, and someone outside your badminton circle too, because with your help, we can show the world how incredible badminton is. To keep up to date with new episodes and who we're interviewing next, make sure you connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at The Badminton Podcast, and on Twitter at The Badminton Pod. Feel free to contact us and ask any questions, give us feedback, or request topics for future episodes. We love hearing from you. And remember to check out and shop for your simple and minimalist badminton gear at volantwear.com. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.